Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. I am, uh, if you're new to Oak City Church, welcome. My name is Jeff. Really glad you're here. Uh, This is a crazy, this is kind of a weird morning. Stop here for just a second. Stop here. This is Kendall. We Kendall moved. Kendall and Lisa moved, and their, their daughters moved to Portugal a few years ago, and so they're back for a few weeks. Uh, as is Kendall's cello. So let's hear it for Kendall and his cello. That's Benny. So John Enzor has been here forever. That is John Enzor's dad. He's played a few times at the church, and so let's hear it for Benny Enzor's piano. Um, super excited about that. And this is Eric. Everybody say hi, Eric. Hi. I mentioned a few hi. weeks ago um, when I was talking about just two back-to-back messages of how the church is supposed to be salt and the church is supposed to be light and light. We have a team called Oak City Serves that is really directing our efforts to be a blessing to our city and to love our neighbor well. And Eric is the one that heads up that team. And so he's going to talk to us about the, what we've been talking about, the Adopt-A-Block event that's coming up next week. Yeah. So uh, next weekend is Adopt-A-Block. It's uh, through Raleigh Dream Center, and it's their back-to-school bash where we hand out uh, backpacks to the children uh, that can't afford them. So it's a really great thing. Um, If you have any questions, Meg McManus, Megan Anderson are also uh, on Oak City Serves, and we can can help answer those. We have claimed all the spots, so we still need a couple people to uh, come up and just hand them out. It's awesome. It's 10, 10 to 12. And uh, so two hours, it's like five minutes from here, right off of Raleigh Boulevard. And uh, we've had a couple people ask about if they brought their ch- kids. Uh, one of the reasons why we've tried to kind of take uh, ownership of, uh, of the Washington Terrace site is because it's got a great uh, fenced-in little brand-new park that they built there. Uh, part of us bringing, uh, you know, if you, if you bring your kids, they get to play with the, the local kids there. Uh, we're trying to get a children's ministry kind of going to to uh, minister to them, and uh, so it's a safe space. It's within, you can see the kids. They can play with the other kids there, and uh, if anybody's been, uh, you know, obviously we didn't do much last year, but the year before, uh, it's a really good uh, opportunity to, to get in and serve our community, and that's really what we want to do with Oak City Serve. So, How do they sign up for that? Uh, text, you can text that number. Text that number. I think that's Megan's number. That uh, might be the church I don't know number. what number that is. Yeah. Anyways, just let us know. We definitely need a couple more people. Um, I, I don't know whose number that is. So uh, text it and see if they respond, I guess. It's uh, the, <laughs> it is the church number. Oh, it goes okay, to cool. Tiffany. Okay, okay yeah. cool. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so we definitely need a couple more people. Uh, you know, I think we claim 10 spots. Uh, it would be great. To, we really want to show, uh, you know, the, the residents of Washington Terrace and, you know, the community that we're out there in our church is... Uh, you know, serving our community, because that's what we're called to do, like Jeff said. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Michael, should they do Adopt-A-Block? You need to be, yes, yes. So that's my son who's leaving, like, in a week and a half. We'll talk about that next week. And um, uh, we we did that consistently. We did it at Millbank more than Washington Terrace, but it was just great. My kids got to know those kids. Like, they knew which kids were coming out every week. And um, those experiences are just powerful experiences, so that's, that's great. I, um, I, 
A couple of people have asked me how I am this morning. I, I am super excited for this morning. My mom is in the hospital. She had a minor car accident this week that is turning into something more than that. So I'm just going to ask you for a minute to bow your head and say a prayer for my mom. Uh, just that God would give clarity to the doctors about what's going on. Amen. Thank you guys. Uh, but just to be transparent about that. But this is, I'm so excited about this. This is my neighbor, Timothy Abraham. You can come on up, Timothy. Uh, everybody say hi, Timothy. And um, Timothy has been my neighbor for about six years. Here, you can have a seat and take this. Um, and I picked up on his story. I don't, I don't even know how, how I picked up on his story, but I have been, it's kind of been in my back pocket to tell this story for um, a number of years. And, and so this is a series that we've done um, most, most years in August as a church called Where's God When Life Happens. Uh, just talking about, you know, how, how God's at work in our lives. And um, this is a little bit different for that, for that series, but um, it's fantastic. So Timothy grew up in Egypt. And what was the town? I grew up in uh, Egypt. In the Delta region, which is what uh, what we know in the Bible to be the land of Goshen. When I read my Bible and I hear the Psalms, eating my breakfast every day, and uh, if you're curious, it's oatmeal every day. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear my Psalms, and I uh, hear about names of some cities mentioned, like the land of Zoan. Zoran, and Arabic and in Hebrew, and uh, that's, that was about 30 minutes away from where I lived. A lot of, th these are the places where, uh, there were, there were, there, were, um, there was a, an administration of the pharaohs in that part, and they have uh, treasures and gold and whole world, you know, that has to be excavated. So I grew up in that part, the land of Goshen. And um, you, just talking to you, because one of the thoughts I have is like, we don't know what it's like to grow up in Egypt. It was pretty normal. It's a little bit like growing up anywhere. <laughs> you know, you said you're... Yeah, you eat okra, I eat okra. <laughs> I cook my okra with tomato and garlic. You fry it. I have come to adapt and eat uh, okra fried and eat it uh, pickled from Walmart. <laughs> so you eat uh, liver. I grew up eating liver too. Uh, life, people are people everywhere. We're all the same, but we don't know it. You didn't, you didn't grow up wealthy? No, but neither did you. <laughs> yeah. You said your dad. Yeah. We, we were people trying to make a living, you know. People just want to make a living, and they want to provide for the family. 
Um, you, you had a couple siblings. Your mom stayed home. My mother was a homemaker. I had uh, a younger sister and a younger brother, and I was the oldest son. And you grew up in a Muslim family? Yeah, we're all Muslims, so everybody's a Muslim. But you said you knew a, a few Coptic Christians? Yeah, there, uh, there's a minority of uh, Coptic uh, Christians, and uh, they are traditional Christians. Uh, they tend to be on the liturgical side. Uh, there's a revival now in the Coptic Church where people are uh, trying to seek a closer walk with the Lord. And, uh, but it's still uh, traditional, you know. But who's to say, you know, traditionalism is can be even found in the heart of the evangelical church. Um, and you said growing up, you guys went, you guys went to mosque, was it on Fridays? So, but it, it sounded like a lot of people growing up here and go to church, but it didn't mean a whole lot in your... Yeah, I prayed, uh, every Muslim tries to pray five times a day, and I went to the mosque uh, on Friday, like people go to church on Sunday. Um, and you said most Muslims are just trying to be good people. Yeah, most Muslims are people like you and me, and they generally tend to be very good people, uh, generous people. Uh, they are passionate about their belief. Uh, they take their faith in God seriously. Uh, of course, formality can and being casual can creep into any form of belief, whatever it is. Um, what did you think about America growing up? I always have had great uh, admiration for America because of uh, scientific discovery and uh, going up to the moon and uh, NASA and uh, technology and all this. So when we were Growing up, there was that fascination with America. Um, I guess I think we can tend to think that everybody in the Middle East hates America because that's what we see on TV. But that was interesting to me that you, you thought differently. And then what did you think about Jesus growing up? Uh, growing up, I thought of him as a prophet and uh, just a man, you know? No, not more than that. Gotcha. When you were 14... You said you got recruited by some guys in the Muslim Brotherhood? Yeah. And that's, the, that's what we hear about on TV, right? The Muslim Brotherhood? Like that's the... Yeah, I grew up in the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, <clears throat> when I was in my habit of going to the mosque, I was introduced to uh, a couple of friends in the mosque and they uh, greeted me after I finished my prayers in the evening. And one of them introduced himself as Brother Muhammad, and the other introduced himself as Brother Suleiman. I said, I'm Ibrahim, and he said, Brother Ibrahim. And from there on, I came to know that we were the Muslim Brotherhood. And you were, you were teaching. Yeah, and they encouraged me to teach. 
and I would teach, uh, preach a sermon in the mosque on the first Monday of every lunar month. And uh, uh, go from mosque to mosque and teach uh, at, the, at the age 14. Um, when your dad found out you were involved uh, with the Muslim He was infuriated because he felt uh, uh, I was straying from moderate belief and people were being critical too in the community. They told him, your son is, jo is joining a fundamentalist Muslim group and that's not right. So he wanted to protect his uh, guard against shame. <clears throat> and so he prevented me or sought to prevent me. <clears throat> and uh, uh, tried as much as possible to keep me away from them. But he did that by beating you up. Uh, it was, you know, a smack here and there, you know, not beating up. Well, you said you have a fake tooth. That was my history. <laughs> um, that's another thing. Why that don't you let me tell, uh, tell me the story and so I let it go and flow and it will be easier. Go for it. Because we're not gonna stop at the fake tooth and the fake eye and the fake ear. <laughs> oh, I don't know you had a fake eye. Here's my story. My name is Ibrahim, and I'm known by the nickname Timothy Abraham. I come from a Muslim family. Uh, being a Muslim means somebody who's submitted to God. And just in case you wonder, who is God? It's the maker of the universe. That's what a Muslim believes in. And in that belief, a person is taught to be fearing God, observing God. Uh, it's, you know, you would wonder, is it the same God we worship? Or is it not? You can say Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, took the God of the Old Testament as the belief of the, uh, uh, there were Jews in Arabia, he took belief in that God and took as much of it as possible and called it Islam. So Islam itself didn't come up with a God of its own or anything. He used the biblical God that was common in Arabia, that was being known in Arabia at that time, and there were monasteries and uh, synagogues in Arabia, and he pointed people out in the direction of that God. If anything, he was actually claiming to believe in the God of Abraham. But as he got stronger politically, he became independent of that God. I mean, independent of, um, of Judaism, of Christianity, and all this. But even his wife herself was a Christian, the first wife, Khadija. So as uh, I was praying, I would pray five times a day. I would do my ablutions, which means cleaning and washing, using the bathroom first, and making sure I clean this part and that part and all that. And it was, you know, it had to be done meticulously. You find that a bit strange, but where did that come from? It came from Judaism, because the Jews are extremely meticulous about the uh, cleansing rituals. I have a an Israeli Jewish friend, she came and visited me in the beginning of my marriage. We knew her through the internet. Her father is Yemeni, from Yemen. And I would ask her, we would read the Psalms together with her beautiful uh, Eastern accent. And because Arabic and Hebrew are similar, 
whatever I heard in Hebrew stuck in my head easily. I, I know Hebrew fairly well. And so when I read the Psalms, I read it now in Arabic, Hebrew, and English. And I would, her brothers are heavily involved in the synagogue. So I would say uh, she talked about something called the mikvah. Lady, and as soon as the menstruation is over, they have to go to the mikvah, a, a big, uh, like a baptismal pool, to be cleansed. I said, and do you go, Gila? She said, no, don't, don't even ask me. But the religious ones have to go and get cleansed first from that. And Muhammad took all these things from Judaism and incorporated them into Islam. So you know, why do they do this? Why are they being meticulous on, and particular about the part of cleaning and cleansing and all that? It came from Judaism. And so uh, I, I was trying to be obedient to God, uh, but without really being, uh, you know, the average Muslim is not religious. It's cultural Islam. The average Muslim is content to believe in one God and uh, obey him, do what is pleasing. It's like the average American. You ask the average American, would you be interested in this and, and that in church? They will tell you, I don't do anything bad. I'm good, I'm good to all people, I'm fine. So does the Muslim, you know, people who believe they are going by the book and doing what is right. So the Muslim thinks that if he's doing all these things, he doesn't need to get deeper or anything. He's praying, he's raising a good family, providing for the family. There's nothing to worry about more than that. But some go deeper into the books and try to follow the exact example of Muhammad. And that's where you have fundamentalist Islam. So the fundamentalist Muslims are not really fundamentalists, but there are people who are trying to emulate the example of Muhammad to the T. And that's what I tried to do, see what he was eating. So we would fast every Monday and Thursday and eat palms in the mosque and everything. Uh, just how Muhammad walked, uh, a whole description of, you try to uh, imitate as much as possible. You know, that's why, where you have what is called fundamentalist Islam. But in reality, in all actuality, it's not fundamentalist. Uh, with, th with that Islam, I became, uh, I would go, I was zealous. Uh, why am I, why was I zealous? Because I can't help but be zealous. That's how I'm designed, you know, I'm passionate about anything. If I make anything, I put my heart into it and I feel strong about things, be it Christianity, be it Islam, be it a pot of rice that I'm cooking. I'm always passionate about anything. And so, uh, Muslim pe the, the leaders in the Muslim Brotherhood loved that. They said, we want that guy. We want him to go and speak to our youth. And so they indeed would take me and we would walk and walk for miles and miles from, say, Raleigh. I mean, if what's the closest place here? Uh, even as far as, you know, uh, Lewisburg, we would walk, 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 you know, and in order to go and give a sermon in the mosque and come back home. And I love doing that. I never felt like this was something hard or anything. And even now, you know, I'm in ministry, nonprofit ministry. 
yes, the Lord provides for me through the ministry. But even if it wasn't, if, even if I wasn't provided for financially through the work I do now, I'd still be doing the same thing. It's like what Paul says, woe to me if I don't do that. I'm under obligation to do that. It's something that comes from within. And while I was in the Muslim Brotherhood, I was eager for everybody to know Islam, trying to teach people and save people from hellfire. Because in Islam, a Muslim is a Muslim because he's afraid one day he will burn and roast in hell. And so there is that constant fear of God, fear to the point of terror of God. And so it's a relationship based on terror and fear. And we as Christians have to be on guard against that mindset as well because you can terrorize somebody into the kingdom of God. Bring fear, you know, if you don't, if we don't do this, we guilt, you know, relationship. If there's grace, there, there should be no guilt. But how often do you see people in the church and Christianity who are operating out of guilt? If it's guilt, then it's not grace. Deal with guilt and operate out of grace and without fear or anything. Uh, and so, um, while I was trying to convert people and encourage them to be good Muslims in order to uh, get right with God and, uh, and be safe on the day of judgment, uh, I wrote to American pen pals. And I corresponded with an American pen friend. And he and I corresponded with each other for two years. I remember when I got a package from him and I get the Bible. It, was, it didn't say a Bible. It was a book that said the joyous news for the Greek physician Luke. I opened the envelope and after I prayed my noon prayers at the mosque and we started reading with eagerness. It doesn't say a Bible. There's nothing to fear. We were unguarded and we wanted to see what that Greek physician has to say. And we were very interested, curious, and reading and reading and reading. And then we read some things that seem like the book was written just this year. It's the story of a man who had two sons and one of them had the audacity to walk up to him and say, give me my share of the inheritance. It fe that felt like a story from our own village. Everything written in that book felt like as if it's everyday common affairs at our village. So I became eagerly interested in that person. But there was somebody in the book that the Bible kept, re the book kept referring to as Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. Who is that Yeshua? Could it be Isa that we know in the Quran and we don't know it? Maybe, we'll find out. And it turned out that this Yeshua is the same as Isa, is the same as Jesus. And I was very amazed by the character of this person. I wanted to get to know him more and more. I became, the more I read about him, the more interested I became in wanting to know him and know who he is. And uh, I looked at some of his dealings with people and they reflected a bigger spirit than anything I ever knew in Islam. For instance, they bring him a woman supposedly caught in the act of adultery. And instead of saying she should receive her punishment, he says, he looks at them and he says, which of you is without a sin? Whoever of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. I say, that guy 
that person, the prophet, shows a much higher character than Islam could ever come up with. And that's why, really, you know, when some people, like one, one Palestinian Christian friend told me, even if you can't prove any of that, but if you look at the personality of Christ, he's closer to a God than to an average human being. Just from the way he's conducting himself. For instance, you love me, I love you. That's human. You hate me, I hate you. But to love you when you hate me, that's divine. And so everything about the personality of Christ and the Bible is presented on the divine level. It's far higher than what average people can come up with. And Christianity is an invitation for every human being to operate on the divine level. Um, I pretended I was just doing research, studying, comparing, if anybody would. And my leaders in the Muslim Brotherhood became concerned that I was now beginning to read these things, you know. I said, I'm trying to convert people into Islam. And indeed, I was sincere. I did want to convert people into Islam. But my pen friend, John, John McLean, the, my, uh, he and I corresponded with each other for two years. He came and visited me at the village. He was from Winchester, Pennsylvania. And he, I met him in the airport, uh, was excited to meet him, greeted him in the most enthusiastic way, kissed him on both cheeks and hugged him. He told me in America, men don't do that. <laughs> <clears throat> and in America, indeed, men don't do that. Neither are they passionate to, towards one another or anything. Men have a distance and everybody is an island to himself. So there is that solitariness, you know, there is, but when John came, I was excited. This is my brother coming and we'll be one family and we'll live and, and, uh, and so I took him uh, on the bus. We, you know, the, I didn't, I mean, if I, if I were to meet him now, I would take a taxi, but we wanted to make do with the lease because of our tight means. And John knew he was coming to the house of a poor family like this. And uh, as we got on the bus, from the bus on the train, finally we arrived to my village, the town in which I live. And I began thinking, if I walk around with an American who is very white and with a bushy beard and uh, and people see him will be chased after by people in the village. So we took a, a detour around the village. And we walked, took the longest way in order not to be seen. And there was rice and fish that my mother made. And we all ate together. And I was happy that John is eating like us. He's one of us. We eat with our hands. He eats with our hands. He's never too good for us or anything. And then I showed him his bed. I gave him my bed. And I slept on the bigger couch uh, opposite the bed. And uh, as John is reclining for the evening, I noticed he's getting his Bible and he's reading. And I became curious. What is he doing? You know, uh, that's uh, evening time. And especially the light is dim and all this. That's, that can be hard on the eyes. But he was determined to read his Bible before going to bed. I said, so show me what you're reading. 
And when I saw what he's reading, uh, he told me uh, he's reading something called uh, uh, a psalm in the book of Psalms. And uh, I, he read the verse, and it was, The arrogance mocked me without restraint, but I didn't turn from your law. I loved his American accent and how it's flowing and musical and all this. Tried to imitate it, so I speak like an American. And uh, he explained what the verse means. And I became, said, I love how the Bible flows musically like that. You know, I love linking English, the learning of English with uh, knowledge of the Bible. I became more interested. And, and especially I wanted to perfect my English. So you would have people, you know, who'd want to know how to perfect their English. You have the Arabic Bible, English Bible, and you have a perfect recipe for perfecting a language. And so uh, I was impressed that he wouldn't go to bed before praying. And he did that every evening. Thought now, I follow the same example. I cannot go to bed without praying. The evening, the last hour before bedtime is the hour of the Lord. That's not my hour. And if I stray from that, I know I'm in the wrong. So I take that time to listen to relaxation music and commune with the Lord before going to bed. So before I go to bed, the Lord is the last thing on my mind. And that's who I give credit to for that. It's my American friend, John, who was living that lifestyle. So whatever you do in front of people without words, it's what will be imitated later on. You don't have to say anything. You just have to live in a certain way, and that will speak volumes and speak louder, because that's how you live. And when I we woke up in the morning, I saw, I saw John doing the same thing, getting one of these notepads and with his handwriting that I'm very familiar with, and his NIV Bible that was the size, and he's reading his Bible, and I became curious. What is he reading? And I decided to imitate him also and get the Quran. If he's reading his Bible, you also get your Quran and read your holy book like he does. Be jealous of him. He's reading good news. God loves people. God loves people as they are. And he continues to love them as they are, no matter how terrible they become. I wasn't reading that kind of a book of good, new, good news. I was reading a book that told me you are loved on the basis of how good you can become. And that's a big difference between Islam and Christianity. In Islam, you are loved on the basis of how good you have become, how perfect, how close to perfect you are. But in Christianity, you know, I know some people teach otherwise, but in Christianity, the message is you are loved as you are every day, regardless of what state you are in. God's love to you doesn't waver or become less or anything. If anything, it increases more because it is through that love that you will be healed. I saw the big difference between Islam and Christianity. I saw the Quran every time I read it. It made me feel more morbid, sad, depressed, uh, anxious. Uh, I pulled away from the Quran. John stayed with me for a couple of months. Uh, we would have discussions, naturally, because I'm the one who will start them anyway. And we would argue, and I would drive him to the point of anger and uh, exasperate him, and, and he would, you know, get uh, annoyed with that, and sometimes he would even toss the Bible on the floor in uh, fury, in agitation. And when he would do that, I would say, that guy is a truly sincere Christian because he's not trying to pretend 
to be something in order to win me over to Christianity. Mm -hmm. He's being himself. And I'd like to use that to tell you that if you want to have a great impact on somebody, don't try to be Mr. Perfect. Don't try to be Mrs. Perfect, but be a human being. Be true to your own humanity. Don't fake out the perfect self-righteous, the one who doesn't make mistakes. No, be as you are. And this in itself will have a deeper impact on the soul of the person. And that John of that period, as he is, is really the one I think fondly of. And so he stayed with me for a couple of months like that. I observed how he lived, how he prayed, how human he was, how he was part of us. He, was, he taught me many things. He taught me in every way that I can take hours to talk about. He remains the foundation of the very beginning of my Americanization. He, doesn't, he never intended or wanted really to Americanize me or anything, but generally you want to look for something better, something higher than what you have known all along, and it's, it's okay to do that. Uh, after, before I left, I told him, John, I have some good news to you. Your visit, if anything, it made me a stronger Muslim. And that I was saying more as a reaction in order to tell him your visit is a failure. But in reality, I was lying. If anything, his visit put more Bible in me than anything else. And while we were arguing, he won the battle on his own knees in intercessory prayer. And so uh, one day after uh, he came back from Cairo, I told him, I feel like I try to give up Christianity and uh, give up study of Christianity and all this, but I found myself drawn to it. It's not something I want, but something is drawing me from within. And he says, I know that's what's happening to you. And uh, I, that's why I'm here. And one day you'll be like Paul. Mm. And I didn't know, you know, what he was talking about. Or I, I knew, but I didn't want to acknowledge that. Mm. You'll be like Paul. And I don't like somebody to tell me that you are now like Paul because I'm an average human being. Uh, and so was Paul too, but you know, there's no need to, you know. Uh, and so uh, with, with John as, you know, before, after he left for the States, his impact stayed with me. And after he left, I, while I decided to give up any reading of the Bible, but I found myself drawn strongly to the Bible. There was a power within, from within, pulling me towards the Bible more and more. And I, that power, what do you call it? Maybe it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and then I found myself tormented and torn between two beliefs. Lord, show me the truth. And the truth you lead me to, I will serve all my life, whatever the cost may be. And as I prayed this prayer, day after day, I had a dream in which Christ appeared to me in the dream. Full light as the light on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he said to me with a soft, gentle voice, I love you. I broke into tears and I said, I love you too. I know you. You are eternal forever and ever. When I woke up, I found actual tears on my face, literally. It wasn't just a dream. Saw so the filled the tears. 
wiped them, and began saying to him, I love you. I know you. And now, what makes me so convinced that Christianity is true? I know my Lord. That's the only thing I have. When shaken, when disappointed, when, 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 I know whom I have believed in. When this happened, I told my sister about it, and she was excited. And because we believe that if somebody is visited by the Lord in his dream, that, uh, by God in his dream, by whatever, you know, there is something big, you know, and it's to be taken seriously. She encouraged me to write it down, and I did. I obeyed her, and it's because I obeyed that I have a testimony to tell today, to know the turning point in my life. And since that moment, I never felt like I have to prove anything. I mean, I have been through difficulties, challenges, you know, waves, tornadoes of every kind, but it all comes down to I know who I have believed in. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Uh, after that, I tried to keep my faith secret, but Muslims began to notice some change in me. They said, you don't look like we have known you, Ibrahim. You're a different man. Your demeanor is different. There's something different about your demeanor. Not the same person you were before. And it's like Agrippa, King Agrippa said to Paul, your language gives you away. Your spirit gives you away. Something about the aroma of Christ is bound to give each one of you away if you abide in Christ and are deeply rooted in him. And so when he said that, I tried to deny it. I said, oh, there's nothing at all or anything. And so I said, no, there is something different about you. And we can see it. I said, maybe you're right. He said, now tell me the truth. Was Jesus crucified? I said to myself, shame on me. If I tell otherwise about the Jesus who confronted me face to face, I explained to him how the story of Christianity and how he was crucified. He said, can you pray with me? I said, I will pray with you now. I held his hand to pray and his entire face, and we're talking about people who are brown like me, that brown became all red, 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 red. I remember these moments very well. The minute I held his hand to pray, his entire body became red and started shaking violently. I said, there is something unusual about the power of Christ's name when praying with a Muslim, with anybody. The name of Christ shakes up the whole being. We have seen his power. We have beheld his glory. And every time I prayed with that friend, I would look at him and say, how can his face become red like that? I never saw anybody with the brown color turning red. Maybe I turn red and I don't know it. But I, whenever I talk to him, his whole face, his whole skin become red, red, red. And then he'll start shaking violently. And uh, I said, maybe the Holy Spirit is banishing some things out of his life. The Muslim spirit is at war with the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they tried to twist his arm and manipulate him, and he betrayed me. He came and stole my journal, 
in which I wrote my whole testimony and my whole uh, prayers being answered. And he stole that. He said, could you, get me, could you go and get me some water? I said, sure. I went to get the water. The minute I'm walking around with the earthen vessel with the water that I used to drink from, he jumped out of the window. My journal. He stole my journal and ran, middle and ran away with it. He they took that journal and mass photocopied it and gave it away to everybody in the village to read. And that was the best favor they could have done for the gospel of Christ. Amen. They took that journal and distributed it for everybody in the village intending to scandalize me. While they intended to scandalize me, in reality, they promoted the gospel and printed tracts and they paid for all that all these copies, to the point that when I was in another town in the same bookshop from which I got the magazine in which I found John McLean's address, one guy stopped me, paused to talk to me, and he said, by the way, I know who you are, and I read a photocopy of your journal, and I know why you became a Christian. You have seen prayers being answered, but I don't want you to become a Christian. I smiled politely because at that time I was under police supervision and I was really under so much scrutiny from the police and punishment and all this. But with the journal being distributed like that, it went everywhere. Everybody read a copy of, but the biggest thing that these people could gather from my journal on why I became a Christian is I have seen the power of answered prayer. My God is real. My God lives. I don't believe so I can get a pass into heaven. No, but because I have a deep relationship, an intimate relationship with the God I live with day by day, minute by minute. And after the journal was stolen, I went to get my journal. They told me. Then I met my former leader in the Muslim Brotherhood who always took me under his wing and treated me as a younger brother, as a son. And he said, why don't you come and pray with us? I said, sure, I'll come. Trying to pretend like I'm a, I was a Muslim in order to avoid persecution. And when I said, sure, I will come, he lifted his hand in the air and slapped me with all his force. And he shouted, you infidel. Till today, the words ring in my ear. Ya kafir. Muslims heard the word, ya kafir, you infidel and they got out of the mosque and started punching me from every side. When they started punching me, I decided not to waste away the moment. I immediately linked it on another Friday on which a similar episode happened when the Son of God was caught and beaten up and they treated him like a thief. He said, you have jumped on me like as if a thief, I was a thief or a burglar or something. I said, if my own Lord was treated the same way. Why should I see this as any surprise? A student is not better than his teacher. A servant is not better than his master. If they call the Lord of the house, Beelzebub, how much more the household? And when I saw that, I found myself in the middle of the beating. And because I linked it with the Lord immediately, 
I had no anxiety whatsoever. If anything, I was singing praises. And all the songs of victory came to my mind at that moment while they were hitting and beating and some pushing some away to avoid a, you know, a killing scene and all this. Later on, I escaped the village, went to Cairo in order to avoid uh, being killed that night. Went to Christian friends in Cairo. They were afraid because they would be persecuted too. So I stayed there for three nights or something and I was told to go back and take care of my business there. So I said, okay, I'll go there and take care of my business. When I came back, I saw a big mob of Muslims. And I said, wow, they, they want to make me a Muslim by force. Of course not. And that night I spent the night in jail. And I was became determined that one day I will leave the village and leave all this permanently and proclaim the gospel to Muslims all over the world. How? I didn't know. I mean, somebody like me didn't have means, didn't have connections, didn't have anything. And, uh, and so I decided to keep quiet. I spent that night in jail. And then later, I was transferred for further interrogation and grilling in a, you know, investigation. And uh, after that, I was, uh, you know, released, but I was under supervision. Now, you would think, you know, he, some my Christian friends in Cairo who, saw, who didn't, couldn't do much for me, they said, he is definitely going back to Islam. But how can I go back to Islam when I have met my own Lord? and told them, I know you. And as the police came into the house, they searched the house, they took away my Bible, took away everything. They didn't they even took my cassette tapes of worldly music and everything. They left me nothing. And I didn't have a Bible. So I said, Lord, please send me your word. I'm used to reading your word every day. I'm sure you have a way of getting me your word here. Yeah, show me what you can do, please. I'm praying like a child here, you know. And my brother came with breakfast, and we are unwrapping the newspaper page to get the falafel out of it. And it was the second page of a popular Egyptian Christian newspaper called Watani. And the verses, it had verses from the Bible. And the verses were directly related to my situation. The first verse was, before the Lord, I'm telling you the truth. The first verse was, do not be afraid, for I'm with you. I will not. I will not forsake you nor abandon you. Be strong and of good courage, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I decided to memorize these verses before it, it gets confiscated. At that moment while I was reading, an informer uh, from the secret police knocked at the door. My sister snatched the paper from me and burned it on the kerosene stove that we were making the tea on. And when she burnt it, I didn't have anything. I didn't have a chance to copy down anything. And I used, I used to copy down verses and hide them in my dictionary. 
The second day, I prayed the same prayer. Lord, please send me your word. I can't begin a day, live a day without your word. And I found, my brother found the same exact page on the street next to our house. Right next, but this time it didn't have oil. It didn't have grease on it. It was because it was on the street, but the other one was from the restaurant with the falafel. The one from the falafel was burnt on the stove. But the next day, another one identical, the same exact page, was on the street next to our house. And I was stunned that I was operating on that level, you know. Uh, do I need any proof for my Christian faith when the Lord himself is proving with his own tangible means day after day that he is with me, I'm with you, wherever you go, I will not leave you or abandon you. So I got that page and copied copied the verses in my Longman dictionary. And I always started the dictionary. And lit the Bible and got some uh, brown paper, paper bag, and copied the verses and covered the dictionary with this and put another cover. So I hide these things. And I say, heard the voice saying to me, remember, You have the Bible. You have to take it all in before it gets confiscated, before it's taken away from you. And I became serious about taking the Bible as seriously as possible and treating it the highest, most ultimate thing in my life. And wherever I go, I have a Bible. Wherever I sleep, I have a Bible because I remember how much of a price I had to pay for the Bible. I have a son who is 17 years old. I showed him the dictionary. I still have it. I said, do you see these verses? Do you know in what circumstances I wrote them? It's when they took away my Bible. And I was hiding the Bible verses in the dictionary so nobody would see them. And began to ask the Lord to find me ways so I can read the Bible without, being, without confiscating it. I was majoring in English literature. And so whenever they would give me an, a work of classics, I would look like uh, Daniel Defoe's book, Robinson Crusoe. I would get the book and look at the index and look for the Bible verses and would be excited, elated to find one Bible verse to memorize. How many Bible verses do we have that we can memorize today? How many Bible verses were determined to memorize? Because this is the only sustenance we have. This is what makes God real to us. I'm sorry I've taken so much of your time, but I'm telling you my story as it is without inhibition. And I can tell you more and more. I don't generally, I have almost to protect myself emotionally. I have our old version for people in churches that I give in a certain frame of time. But I, for some reason, I find myself telling you everything and what and so far as it relates to your own spiritual benefit. I got the Bible as much as I could as a university student from the index, looking at the index of novels. And the history of English drama began in the church. If we fall back on our roots, we want to think drama, think literature. It began with the Bible, enacted in the church. 
The story of creation is the first play ever, and it was enacted in the church. And I learned that from my books in English literature in the university by Anthony Burgess. Uh, I lived in Egypt as a secret Christian for five years, trying to, you know, the uh, Christian, I would use other Christians uh, mailing addresses to send me New Testaments and I would get the New Can I ask you a question? Uh, please feel free. You're right, this was a lot better. Now, I'm sorry? No, that was a good idea for you to just talk and me not ask you questions. No, I'm going to no. ask you one question. It was a good idea. This is my neighbor. You guys should get to know your neighbor. You never have any, you don't know. You don't know. It's just my neighbor. He was walking one day. And um, you said, it, technically, by the law, when you convert to Islam, you have three days to three, recant. Three days to recant. Or, and if you don't recant, you are, uh, the sentence of death is on your head. And so they could kill you. They have every right to. And I was, and, I, and this was said when they gathered in my house. They jumped everywhere. They sat even on my own bed, on my own bed, on the couches. They did, made themselves too comfortable. A mob of Muslims broke into the house like you would see in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. They, even in the Dark Ages, there were Raphael Sanzio and Michelangelo. But this is way, uh, you know, lower than you can imagine. And they got there, and they started questioning me, arguing, and they trying to prove that I did convert to Christianity. And when they tried to prove that, one guy got tired of it, a next-door neighbor. He said, guys, we need to wrap this up. We can't stay in this house for good. If you want to kill him, please go ahead and kill him. I said, really? <laughs> Is that a cow, and you're going to just kill like that and, and leave? And so, but that was the, it's, 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 it's to the most regular average Muslims, that's the mindset. Hmm. You know, he doesn't have to be a fan. I mean, the guy who said that wasn't a fanatic. So that's the law. Yeah, yeah. But they're said, not always If you want, yeah, the, uh, to you, of course, they will present you with the embellished version, blah, 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 and so on. But he got tired of waiting too for too long in my house, you know. He said, if you want to kill him, kill him. But let, let's make a, a decision one way or the other. Yeah. Um, can we do this? Can you talk yeah. about how you got over here, Dr. Patterson? Yeah, and all that? And of then course. we'll take a few questions. Absolutely. Okay. While I was translating books, I made my living as a translator, translated books from English to Arabic and Arabic to English. Since I enjoyed English and enjoyed the language, uh, at that time, I got to know through an American missionary, I was given a copy of a book called Islam Revealed, by, written by a Palestinian evangelist. And I told him, if there is a way to get, snatch me out of that misery, please feel free. Please do that. And he said, we can get you on a student visa. I said, student visa is the best way. And he hooked me up with the president of the seminary of uh, Southeastern here in Wake Forest, Paige Patterson. And Paige wrote me. And it was he didn't say he was a president of a seminary or anything. He said, I heard about you and would love to do anything to assist you. And we'll get you out of there, and we'll see how the Lord leads. And I, I said, his name was Paige. I said, maybe that's another, you know, with my respect, another old uh, uh, elderly woman trying to comfort me. Because I used to have people who would correspond, and they would tell me, you know, send me letters of encouragement. I said, another one. And all of a sudden, I got a packet from the seminary with uh, forms and everything. My Coptic friend said, fill that out accurately. That's your ticket to the States. I filled it out, applied, and I was denied the visa. 
When I was denied the visa, he told me, sorry, we can give you the visa this time, but we hope you get it next time. I said, I will use the money I have to cover for my sister's wedding. And I paid for my sister's wedding and took care of her as a spiritual figure, uh, as her father. And uh, after that, uh, I called them in the seminary. I said, if you can contact senators, Congress people, anybody, and they did. And everybody at that point was ready to do anything for me. People were fervently getting ready to do anything, even people from inside the embassy. One lady who read my testimony, uh, who read a book of uh, one of the books I translated, said, I want to help him get out of Egypt as soon as possible. And everybody somehow conspired. It's divine conspiracy here. And I went one more time to apply. I didn't do more than put my name on a, on a form and paid 25 Egyptian pounds and got the visa in a matter of three minutes without thinking. And I knew I was coming to the States, so I came. And from there, I, I was being treated uh, in a royal way. You know, I, I never I noticed, I never expected that treatment, you know. Coming to America, everybody is treating me, giving me their. Every church in New Jersey, everybody give me their clothes. Everybody give everything they have for me. I was given everything. Nope. When people talk to me about racism, I never was treated with, I never knew what racism is. Everybody treated me like a king. And I came to the seminary and uh, my room was made and everybody was taking care of me and food and clothing, everything, and, and I was doing speaking engagements every week, and I was doing it like I'm on task. I'm, I never sought to make profits from it or anything, but that's how the Lord has been providing for me. I hope I answered the question. You absolutely did. You absolutely did. There's a lot more we talk about. Does anybody have a question that's like burning to, you're burning to ask? Yeah, yeah. John and I are in touch from time to time, but as you know, with he has a family and everybody, and he's now a professor in Chicago, and uh, you know, and uh, he does uh, events with interfaith. Whenever we talk, we pick up from where we left. Uh, we we fondly reminisce the old days and uh, how it was. You know, he remains the person I will always be indebted for. The good question, because I was going to ask this too. The the dream, hmm. like that's a that's a what thing. Is the dream, uh, Megan. Now, her, would you please tell me what her question is? Yeah, the the why did, the dream that you had, the Jesus it, Jesus does that with yeah. Muslims. Yeah, yeah. A lot, right? Why do you think that Jesus comes to Muslims in dreams, maybe more than others? Because other? that's how we understand. God speaks to people in their own language. That's how we communicate. If I see a dream now, I begin to ask myself, Lord, what is the message you want to give me? I don't say it's just a dream. No, I say there is a message. How can I interpret that? People there try to interpret situations and dreams and all this. And 
it says in the book of Job that the Lord meets people in dreams. In the night, he seals on their understanding and then he tells them what to do. If I'm in a situation where I need to get right with God, he would show me the condition of my heart in a dream. And then I take that and say, what do I need to do? Hmm. That's a good answer, right? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That's a good question. Any other questions? Another Megan. I teach my son that we're Americans, and I teach him to love America, and I teach him to respect America, and the secular culture is not our enemy. So my son needs to know that, oh, I'm sorry. My son needs to know that we are Americans, and we are part of everybody, and nobody's our enemy. And we simply respect people where they are at, and we don't talk. We talk about what relates to, you know, what is common. Uh, I notice in America, as well as in France, uh, people are, uh, they would let you talk about Islam, Buddhism, but they don't let you talk about Christianity freely. And that bothers me, uh, but uh, it's, not, you know, a big deal, you know, but I feel like because how Christians have conducted themselves in America, they, they create resistance. Instead of telling people we're part of you, they say, you are, you know, the secular people and we're the Christian people. If we tear down that wall, Christians will be missionaries to millions of people in the American culture, and it's a very uh, desperately needed uh, witness. I hope I'm close to your your answering question. What would you, um, if someone has a Muslim friend, coworker, neighbor, family member, even, what would you tell us about sharing our faith with? Just don't try to convert or try to prove or anything, but let the person feel your love. And when they have a need, say, "May we ask God about this?" and you meet their needs where there is a need. And then the person will get closer to, to you and he will become more curious about the Christ you believe in. And the Christ you believe in will attract his heart because nobody can come to Christ except that the Father draws him. You want that drawing, but you have to facilitate that drawing through your acts of love. It's not about knowledge. You don't have to know, know anything but it's about how big of a heart you have. I am a reader, but when I speak to people about Christ, I don't depend on any scholarly skills. No, I only depend on being united with the Lord and letting the love of the Lord flow from me to the other person. Um, yeah, and you said Muslims like to talk about religion. Yeah, in the East, people always talk about the Lord. And if you ask anybody in the Middle East, how are you? They say, thanks be to God. Whereas here in America, people will talk about God and try to drop him. I mean, you hear people saying, bless you. Where's God bless you? Why did you drop, uh, drop out God, you know? Because they, are, they don't want to sound religious. 
No, they love to sound religious, which is excellent. Somebody not ashamed of God, you know, and they will bring him into the discussion. If you believe it's the God who bless you, say, God bless you. Don't tell me just bless you. This is pretty great, right? Um, yeah, we're going to, so we're going to, the band's going to come back up. We got a few more songs. We're going to sing those. We're late. It's okay. Uh, if you want to go get your kids and bring them back in, you can do that. Um, but I'm going to ask Timothy to pray for us in a second because he, he has his stuff online. He's going to be out um, in the lobby. You need to go the talk to him. Cards, Fill out the card that's on the seat about getting his newsletter. Um, he, he ministers. This is what his job is, is to minister mus to Muslim folks here in Raleigh and online and all over the place. And, um, and so write him a check. Uh, you know, start supporting him. We'd love Thank for you to do that. He'll be out there to answer any more questions you have. He, he has a lot of stuff online, and one of the things that is, at the end of his testimony, he, he has this line, it's really a prayer, Lord, may I, never, may I never be secure or seek easiness in life at the expense of union with you. May I never be secure or seek easiness in life at the expense of union with you. And I think he understands that a lot better than, different, than we do, you know, because of his background, and it just resonates with me because there's a passage in in Acts 4, where I think Peter gets released from prison, and he goes to his people, and they're praying, and he doesn't, he just got released from prison, and he doesn't pray for safety. You remember what he prays for? Does anybody remember this passage in Acts 4? What does he pray for? He prays for courage. He prays for courage to go do something that might get him thrown back in prison again, and uh, it always strikes me, and honestly, whenever we pray for safety, if you're ever around me, and you pray for safety, I am cringing a little bit because I don't think that's what we're supposed to pray for. We're supposed to pray for courage, and, and Timothy knows that in a way that we don't, we don't know that. So I've asked him to pray for our church to okay. close our, our time. Our Heavenly Father, it's my belief that you're the one who builds the church. I pray, Lord, that you build this church in your own way. Adorn it with your beauty. Provide for it richly and abundantly. Bring more people, Lord, to know you and be known by you. I pray, Lord, that you meet each need here according to your glorious richness in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that if there is anybody who's having difficulty finding you to be real in their lives, I pray that you somehow manifest yourself to their hearts and assure them that you're right there and you're not silent. You're the God who hears. You're the God of the last minute and you are never a minute late. In the name of Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, amen.